Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Howard Wall. I'm with the Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise here at Lindenwood. And uh, I'm glad to, you're able to make it to our wonderful campus. Uh, many people haven't been to campus in, say, 20 years or longer. They were here when it was a, a small women's college or just a, a tiny liberal arts school. And uh, I always like to tell people that most of the new buildings, or all of the new buildings that you see, uh, built in the last, say, 20 years, all built with cash. No, uh, no borrowing, we're a rare university, uh, no tenure and no debt. So I think those two things might be related. And welcome to the Plaster College for uh, Business and Entrepreneurship. Really uh, glad that we're partnering once again with our friends at the, the Show Me Institute. It's great to, uh, uh, to do events with them. They bring nice crowds and some of you even, uh, did you swim across the river or how did you get over? Sometimes it seems so difficult, but we're really glad to uh, uh, to have you and uh, hope you enjoy the event and remember your nice stay here at uh, the Plaster College. And I'll introduce uh, Brenda Talent of the Show Me Institute. Thank you, Howard. As Howard said, I'm Brenda Talent. I'm the CEO of the Show Me Institute. I want to thank the Hammond Institute here at Lindenwood, um, Show Me Opportunity, and of course, National Review Institute for co-sponsoring this event, because without them, we wouldn't have our speaker this evening. For those of you who are not familiar with the Show Me Institute, I'm going to give just a little spiel. We are a free market think tank. What we do is we do research and education on policy solutions from, for Missouri from a free market perspective. We believe that state policy should enhance freedom, not limit freedom, and government shouldn't be big and it should be accountable. But you can learn more about us at showmeinstitute.org because you're not here to hear me talk about the Show Me Institute. But do check out our website. We're nonpartisan. And we are supported by individuals like you through your tax-deductible gifts, um, just as National Review Institute is. All right, now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening. Jay Norlinger is a senior editor of National Review and a book fellow of the National Review Institute. He writes about a variety of subjects, including politics, foreign affairs, and the arts. And I, looking across this audience, I'm sure many of you have read his writings. Um, he's the author of two books, Peace, They Say, A History of the Nobel Peace Prize, the most famous and controversial prize in the world, and Children of Monsters, an inquiry into the sons and daughters of dictators. He's also a music critic for the new Criterion and the host of two podcasts. For the National Review website, he writes a column called Impromptus. I believe that's daily, isn't it? Or pretty much? <laughs> um, a native of Michigan, he lives in New York. Maybe we can hear a little bit about that. But um, he has a reputation for open-mindedness in his writing. Um, and I would also say an independence, which is always a good thing uh, in my personal point, from my personal point of view. Tonight, he's going to share his views regarding the roles of journalists, uh, from reporters to columnists, editors, critics, um, and the practice of straight versus opinion journalism, which I think most of us have been seeing more of. So I hope you all join me in welcoming Mr. Nordlinger as he surveys the current media landscape. Wonderful to be accused of being open-minded. I hope I can live up to that. Some people would dispute it. Um, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, for the last many years, 30, every time I've come to a college or university, 
I wanted to enroll. You know, I wanted to turn back the clock. Conservatives are always accused of wanting to turn back the clock. It's kind of true in my case. Uh, I'd love to be 18 and have another crack at it. Um, I'm delighted the Show Me Institute exists. First of all, I think it's a cool name. I, I've always loved this idea of Show Me. I said online the other day, I remember when John Danforth was in the Senate, and whenever he wanted more evidence, more proof, he'd say, I'm from Missouri, show me. I just thought it was kind of cool. I was from Michigan. And um, the idea, I, I got this language from, uh, from uh, Show Me Institute. The work of the Institute is rooted in the American tradition of free markets and individual liberty. I'm so glad these things need to be defended, maybe more than ever, uh, defended against uh, all comers. And... Um, Strength to your hands. Um, and the old line is, you know how um, uh, politicians will say, I'll endorse you or your opponent, whichever helps you more. So use me in any way you want. And about journalism. I, I always loved reading the newspaper. Maybe a strange kid. I, I thought the newspaper was the greatest thing in the world. You know, the front page... Uh, the world news, national news, local news, sports, of course, Detroit sports in my case, and University of Michigan sports, uh, entertainment, a little bit of gossip, you know, comics, and the crossword puzzle. And it was such a gift every day. And my idea of heaven was to read the newspaper with my grandfather on the porch. What he would say is, uh, say let's solve the problems of the world. Then we'd go inside and he'd say, well, Jay and I have solved the problems of the world. And uh, that was the height of living for me to read the newspaper with my grandfather. And uh, it's been a long time since I've held a proper newspaper in my hands, you know. I, for years I had you know, newsprint on my hands and then you'd touch your clothes with it and you'd be smudged. But I was just a newspaper hound, you know. And now I look at my phone and... Um, I have this habit of going to the same diner day after day. It's sort of like Cheers, where everybody knows your name. I go into this diner in New York at 18th and 10th. And I've sometimes heard, well, Jay's always on his phone. You know, his head's buried in his phone. And I want to say, well, you know, reading the newspaper, reading a magazine, reading letters, a form of emails. Uh, they're just on the phone now. And maybe that's a little bit defensive. But, um, and I say bless all those people who aren't hooked on the news and opinion. They may have a happier and healthier life. Uh, but some of us are hooked. And um, it's interesting how people are inclined. You know, journalism, both the consumption of it, production of it. It's for some and not all. Uh, we're all inclined some way. And this is something I like. Um, I've been asked over the years, why do you care so much about words, sounds, slang, you know, notes and so on? You, you like people's names. Uh, why? And uh, I habitually say, you know, I don't know. Um, some people collect butterflies. Some people collect postage stamps or play tennis or badminton or cribbage. But I always start with, you know, some collect butterflies. Fast forward, years later, I've been doing this for years, I was doing a podcast with Ann Applebaum, the historian and journalist who specializes in the Soviet Union, 
Russia, Eastern Europe, the Slavic lands. He's one of the foremost authorities in English on these subjects. And I said, uh, you know, she's from Washington, D.C., and had no real connection to the Slavic world. And I said, why the Slavic world? She said, I swear, she said verbatim, some people collect butterflies. And uh, that's the way she's inclined, and this is the way I'm inclined. And it used to be, I don't know about you, but you, know, you read newspapers and magazines, and I think of magazines in particular, and they had personalities, they had a character. Um, it was like a friend or maybe a frenemy. And sometimes a, a magazine was a bit like a family. Sometimes the family members fought. I think of Christopher Hitchens and Alexander Coburn at The Nation. You know, they fought like crazy. It was rather entertaining. But we all had to choose what to subscribe to. And um, I read a lot of newspapers and magazines at the, at the library. These days, I find I'm following individuals more than publications or outlets. Sometimes I'm not even sure where my friends are currently working. You know, one went to the Daily Beast, and then I think she went to Politico, and maybe at Real Clear Politics now. And it doesn't quite matter in the age of social media. Uh, these social media make it possible to follow individual writers rather than whole publications. I'm not sure that's good or bad, but I do think it's so. I was thinking over this topic, I, I remembered, uh, had a memory of Jean Kirkpatrick. Uh, actually, someone else's memory, uh, my friend Claudia Anderson, who was one of my managing editors at the Weekly Standard in the 1990s. Her mother was Ann Crutcher, a journalist, whose best friend was Jean Kirkpatrick. And Kirkpatrick told Claudia when Claudia was young, try to make your employment relate to the life of your times. You'll have a more interesting life. And Claudia did that. Now, that's not true of everyone, obviously. I know more and more people who would like to retreat from politics and from the world of public affairs. I understand that. But it is a certain kind of living, I would say. And for years now, I've consumed so much journalism, read so much, written so much. It means I've read many fewer books and written many fewer books and sometimes I feel guilty about this, but not enough to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, Ken Minogue, the political scientist, Australian-born, spent his career in London, brilliant fellow. I knew him some through David Price Jones. Uh, he once delivered a lecture, which he made into an essay called Journalism, Power Without Responsibility. It was sort of a brief against the very practice of journalism. And he got the title from Stanley Baldwin, who, when he was inveighing against the press, said, what the proprietorship of these papers is aiming at is power, and power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot through the ages. And um, I read this, and I talked to Ken Minogue about this, and I said that he made me feel a little bit abashed about what I was doing for a living. And I thought he'd excuse me or let me off the hook, and he really didn't. Uh, he had very strong views on this. Uh, there is something to power without responsibility, but there is responsibility, and a lot of it is self-imposed, I would say. Now, I've interviewed a great many people from all walks of life over the years, and it, it occurred to me early on that it's amazing that anyone consents to an interview. Now, I'm speaking of a print interview now. A podcast or something like this is, is different, where the interviewee can be unfiltered whole, complete. 
But if you put your hands, if you put your fate, so to speak, into the hands of a print journalist, I mean, that's really trust. Because, as I've sometimes put it, you know, I could talk for Einstein, I could talk with Einstein for an hour, and then write it up, and make him look like a dope, and never misquote him, but it'd all be selective. You say, I have my thumb on the scale. And so a journalist, especially an interviewer, really has to watch that. Are we representing the person fairly? Uh, am I giving a fair account of what took place uh, between the two of us? Because the temptation to put thumbs or, other, or limbs or whole bodies on the scale uh, can be great. And I tell you, I, I caught myself doing something very early on, a little bit of a confession. I'm not sure whether I did it or was tempted to, but the temptation was to um, clean up the English of people you liked and to leave the English of those you didn't like so much in the raw, you know? I'm just quoting now. And I, I told you, I stopped that. One must not do that. Uh, give everyone a fair shake. I, in journalism, I'm, I'm a generalist, really. I write about a range of topics. And there's that old expression, a, a mile wide and an inch deep, which isn't a great thing to be. But um, you've heard of the expression insta-expertise. It's not real expertise. It's sort of temporary expertise. You do a story, you read about it, you make calls about it, you learn a little bit about it, and become not authoritative, but somewhat knowledgeable about the subject. And you write it up, you know, a teacher needs to know a little bit more than the students, and, and the writer needs to know a little bit more than the general readership. It doesn't have to be a lot more. And then it's like Etch-a-Sketch. Uh, it goes away, and then you're on to the next. And I always think, and I, I counsel young journalists, it's so important to be genuinely authoritative in a subject or two, to be able to go deep. You know, it's marvelous to be able to talk, about, talk for about two minutes about almost anything. I'm very good at the two-minute spiel, you know. But can you go the third, the fourth, the fifth? That's a lot harder. So it's wonderful to have a specialty or two, or a beat or two, uh, where you're really on firm ground. And um, Paul Johnson, the English historian and journalist, said that, uh, he said, when you really want to know about something, find out about something, write a book about it. Which was easy for him to say, because he wrote between 50 and 60. He had such a great facility, an immensely knowledgeable man with a very smooth and fast pen. It was like Bill Buckley in this respect, both very, very fast. Bill always complained he was a slow reader. He said, he's a, I'm a damnably slow reader, he would say, but a fast writer, which made up for some. I think Paul Johnson was a fast reader and a fast writer. But anyway, um, there's some truth to the idea that if you want to know about something, write a piece about it. And I had this memory. Um, I, have, um, I have an animal rights streak. And many years ago, there were these charges against Kentucky Fried Chicken. And uh, uh, charges from PETA and other groups. And I wondered whether they were true. And I, tried, I was managing editor of National Review at the time. And I tried to commission a piece on it. And I couldn't. I couldn't get anyone to write about this subject. I didn't want to write about it. I wanted to write about international affairs and US politics and the arts and so on. But I, I did write about it. And uh, I learned about it. 
And this is um, braggadocious. There'll be a little of that in this talk. Hope you don't mind. But um, published what I published. And I heard from both the head communications flack of KFC. I think they were owned by a big corporation. I think it was Yum Foods. Heard from him, and I heard from the head of PETA, whose first name was Ingrid, I remember. And they both thanked me, which I thought was, which I appreciated. Um, so, yes, uh, journalism is a wonderful field for the curious. It's a license to be nosy. It's a license to meet people, to go places, to find out about things. Um, Bill Buckley liked to quote, this doesn't originate with him, but he liked to quote it and I learned it from him. Uh, 99 of every 100 people are interesting. And so is the 100th, for he is the exception. And, you know, I found it's true that if people are interesting. Sometimes that which is interesting needs to be pulled out of them. But everyone has something to say. Everyone. And, and people who find others uninteresting, I think, are probably uninteresting themselves a little bit, uh, because I suppose there are a few genuine dullards in the world. I really don't meet them much. You know, some are taciturn, some are reticent, but they all have something to say. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about finding out about interview subjects. Um, just a few stories. Uh, don't get me started on too many stories, but some years ago, maybe a decade, a little bit more, North Dakota had an oil boom, a fracking boom. And I went out to cover it. I heard about this guy in the oil patch, an Oklahoma oilman, a tycoon named Harold Ham, who was a big deal in this uh, North Dakota basin. Can't remember all the details, but I think basin's the right word. And he was, I was told, he was the 13th and final child of poor cotton sharecroppers. And every time I say poor cotton sharecroppers, I think, you know, as opposed to the wealthy ones. But, but, uh, it's a bad habit. But I said, I uh, wonder if I could meet him and get his story. And I did. And it was so impressive. You know, a Horatio Alger, right in the flesh, this fellow. Fascinating things to say. Another story. I was, uh, I was in Salzburg, Austria, attending the funeral of a friend of mine old friend, in the cemetery, and there was a man speaking. Uh, turned out to be Marco Feingold, who was the head of the Jewish community of Greater Salzburg. And the guy next to me, someone I knew, said, so that man is a uh, 100 years old. I said, what man? I don't see it. He said, that man there. And the speaker looked 73, maybe. Oh, he's 100 years old. He is not. He is. And he survived every camp you can think of. Um, in fact, his line is, I could write a Michelin guide to the camps. So my little journalistic bell goes off, right? Meet him. Found out how to meet him. Born in 1913. He lived, I interviewed him in his 100th year. He lived until 106. And he had vivid memories of World War I. I mean, genuine memories. You know, not vague early childhood memories where adults tell you and you think you remember. Real memories of World War I, Marco Feingold had. Maybe one more story. Um, from the ballet, 
Julie Kent was a prima ballerina with the uh, ABT, American Ballet Theater, and you know, uh, we're all in love with her. And uh, she, uh, she was retiring, because she was old, which for a ballerina means, you know, I don't know, let's see, she was 35. And uh, a guy like me would want to meet Julie Kent. Ah, retirement is a peg. Ask for an interview. So there I went to the offices of ABT to sit across from Julie Kent. And I asked her a bunch of amateur and politically incorrect questions, which she just howled at. You know, that male ballet dancers don't count, right? They're just there to frame you. Everyone goes to see the ballerina. No, no, it's not true. And I said, now, Lincoln Kirstein said that um, modern dance exists for people who can't do ballet. No, you can't say that, she said. You just can't say that. And uh, she was delightful. And she was delighted by these weird questions, I think. And I, I left those offices on a kind of high. So that kind of thing can, can happen. One part about journalism is it's extreme ephemerality. Uh, there's an old expression, it's fish wrap by Friday. Uh, also, people refer to it as birdcage liner. Uh, young people might not get those expressions in the digital age. You know, fish wrap, birdcage liner. Uh, but it's here today and gone tomorrow. Mark Helprin, the novelist and journalist, uh, he had a regular column in the Wall Street Journal for years, which he headed, written on water. We wanted to suggest the evanescence of journalism, you know, written on water. And Rick Brookheiser pointed out to me once, many years ago, that the very word day is embedded in journalism, jour. So in a sense, daily journalism is a redundancy. In a sense, a daily diary, think of dia, is a redundancy. It's all daily, you know? And so it seems like nothing sticks and nothing matters, but it can cumulatively, you know? So I've been reading George Will columns since, I don't know, the late 70s. And I remember some of them specifically, like going to a Springsteen concert. But it's more just the steadiness over the years. Uh, he helped, he, Buckley, Thomas Sowell, Irving Kristol, others, helped shape a, a worldview. And some journalism deserves to be preserved between hard covers. A few years ago, I had occasion to read a collection from John Dos Passos, the novelist. And his journalism is just crackling. And uh, I don't like to use this buzzword, but relevant, you know, to today. So there is such a thing as high journalism. There's, there's low journalism, tabloid journalism, trashy journalism. But journalism can be a great and elevated thing. And I know a young man who's a great and elevated young man and uh, a recent graduate of Magdalen College, Oxford. And uh, he said to me once, um, you know, I don't want to do partisan hack work. I want to be a journalist like Chesterton, Orwell, and Buckley. I thought, wow, what a triumvirate. But, you know, good for him. And I think he has the wit and wherewithal to at least have a crack at it. This business of opinion journalism versus straight journalism, the line can be awfully blurry or non-existent. 
I do believe there's such a thing as straight journalism, straight reporting, just the facts, ma'am, neutral, semi-objective reporting. Uh, I don't think it's that hard to do. I think people who claim it is probably don't want to do it. I can do it. I've done some of it in my career. Mainly, I've been an opinion journalist with a thumb or two on the scale. It's not that hard to do. Um, you convey basic facts. Uh, you gather a variety of viewpoints. And by the way, I was taught this years ago. You know, you know how you can tell where the writer's bias lies and what he quotes last. What, what's his finish? You know, that's usually the, the tell. But um, speaking of the aforementioned George Will, I was podcasting with him recently, and I, I called him an opinion journalist, which he surely is, but he sort of bristled at it. He said, you know, my columns are packed with facts. I said, I didn't say they were, weren't. No. And he said, um, he, said he, got two great, he had two great compliments in his career. One was from Priscilla Buckley, the managing editor of National Review, who told young George, you know, when your copy comes in, I don't need to see a name because I know from the style that it's you. The other one was decades later, there was a new fact checker at the Washington Post who said, hey, Mr. Will, before I took this job, I didn't know there were so many facts in your columns. And uh, that's true in whatever kind of journalism you do. Facts are really the coin of the realm. Of course, they can be selective, but they, they, they count. And what I often say, especially to young journalists, is um, with the singer Marilyn Horn, the great mezzo-soprano, I once heard her say in a master class, get your technique, kids, vocal technique, interpretation, roles, and so on, poetry. That's something else. She said, she said get your technique, kids, and the world's your oyster. And um, I think... I think that applies to journalism as well. There's so many different types of worker, writer, under this name journalist. I have a little list. Reporters, essayists, interviewers, columnists, profile writers, travel writers, sports writers, critics, tech analysts, finance guys, etc. The more facts, the better. Uh, in my view, accuracy and inaccuracy is not the biggest problem in journalism. There's an old organization, AIM, Accuracy in Media. Accuracy is not a big problem. Where bias lies in journalism is in what you address and what you ignore. Commission and omission. What you report on, comment on, and what you don't. That's really where bias lies. And there are very few outlets in this country, almost none, that you might consider one-stop shopping. You know, there's only so much time. We all have so much to do. There's so much to read. What do you read? If I had to vote, I would vote for the Associated Press feed, uh, which is something I look at regularly, uh, every day. But otherwise, um, there's, there's really no substitute for a diverse media diet. I wish it weren't so. Uh, some left-leaning things won't tell you certain things, and some right-leaning things won't tell you certain things. So how do you find out about them with as diverse a diet as, as possible? Uh, for years I said I, uh, I really needed some fiber in my diet. I, I, I needed to eat my vegetables because I was just consuming hot fudge sundaes all the time. You know, the columnists especially I loved.
And maybe I should have saved those for dessert, you know. And I once wrote an essay called Looking for Lefty because I wanted a, a left winger I could respect and I would go to regularly. And um, so it's a strange media environment we're in. Um, have you heard this buzzword, uh, siloization, to be siloed off? Everyone in his own media silo, you know? And we used to have, and it was good and bad, I would say, interested in what you would have to say, but we used to have more of a common culture. Uh, I'm not saying I'd bring it back, but we had three broadcast networks plus PBS. We had some dominant newspapers. Families took Time or Newsweek. A lot of them took Life. Some strange families took U.S. News and World Report. That was always number three. You know, people saw the same movies, basically, listened to the same hit songs. And uh, that's gone. You know, everyone's here on his favorites. Everyone is curating his own media. What will I like? What will make me feel good? You know, this is my cable network. Oops, I heard something I didn't like. Let's try this other one, maybe more extreme. You know, people are on different planets. Red planet, blue planet, Fox planet, MSNBC planet. So people say to others, where are you getting that? I didn't hear that. Where are you getting that? Oh. You're listening to people. Yeah. It's, um, it's a challenge. Uh, and the media environment and the social media contribute to this polarization, we're saying. And for years, I'm slightly proud of this phrase. Not really. I just find it useful. You know, the old saying is, you are what you eat. I've taken a saying, you are the media you consume. I hear someone talk, and I kind of know what media he consumes. You know, and I have to watch it myself. What am I consuming? And what's my diet like? Good or bad? Um, I spoke before of uh, the blurring of lines. More and more, I see the blurring of the line between politicians or politicos, political figures, and journalists. Some of them are political figures, even political leaders. Um, they cultivate constituencies. They tend to their base, you know. These Fox Dominion filings were very interesting, like the curtain pulled back, seeing how the sausage is made. One of the great night nighttime hosts said, you know, I'll clean this up a little. You never want to tick off your base. Another said to a fact checker, you're not respecting our audience. What does it mean to respect the audience? Um, so this is very challenging. Uh, someone said to me, uh, do you realize you've offended millions of voters? I don't run for office. But a lot of people don't know that. And I say it's the journalist's fault. It's our fault more than the public's. Because a lot of journalists act like politicians. And um, this is a great challenge. And uh, I'm not quite sure how to meet it. Um, I, you owe the audience your best shot, your best information, your best opinion expressed as clearly as you can. And I think you have to let uh, the chips fall where they do. Uh, Independent-mindedness is such a rare thing, I find. And by the way, when I speak of independent-minded people, I'm not talking about centrists or moderates. I'm not. 
one. I like to think I'm independent-minded. Independent-minded people can be quite partisan, have very sharp, strong opinions, but they've arrived at them independently, and they're not serving necessarily a party, a movement, a cause, a group, but their idea of what is true and important. That's the kind of independent-mindedness I'm talking about. And um, two of my great examples are Will and uh, Kevin Williamson. These men are honey badgers, as some people say. They just don't care what others, they just don't care what the left thinks, what the right thinks, what the center, they just don't care. It just rolls off them. It doesn't roll off me yet. I'm aspiring to that. But, but it does them. It's a very valuable quality. Charles Krauthammer said, had this written down here, you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly. He also, he also told me something about his first editorial page editor at the Washington Post, Meg Greenfield. Great woman, Cold War liberal type, very honest, pure journalist and editorialist. Krauthammer loved her, Will loved her. Um, they met every Tuesday for lunch, those three. And Greenfield told Charles that for a long while, for a period of years, she had a rule that she would include some mention of Sakharov in the Washington Post uh, to better the chances of his staying alive. And that was a cause of hers. And I'm very interested in the life of, for example, Vladimir Karamurza, who's just been sentenced to 25 years in prison for high treason. It meant that he criticized the Ukraine war and he survived two murder attempts by poison. Navalny survived one. Uh, Vladimir's health is, is very poor. And uh, there's a worldwide campaign. And we, we do our bit, you know. Uh, what dictators want more than anything about their prisoners is that these prisoners be forgotten. And what they don't want is that they be remembered and, and talked about. And speaking of Sakharov, I remember this story. It was told to me by Jean Kirkpatrick. No, it wasn't, because she's kind of a star of it. That wouldn't be right. I can't remember who told me. But uh, a foreign policy, an American delegation went to Moscow in mm, 88, 89, in there, 90. And you know, people we all know, and uh, went to see Sakharov. They came down this awful you know, apartment building into the vestibule, which is dimly lit. And he said, Kirkpatsky, Kirkpatsky, which of you is Kirkpatsky? And they gestured to Jean. He said, your name is known in every cell in the gulag. Why? Because you'd name the names of prisoners, political prisoners, Zex, on the floor of the UN. Journalists can do this too. I've written a fair amount of, uh, about a Nicaraguan named uh, Felix Maradiaga. And uh, he's a democracy leader, wonderful guy, and I've got to know his wife and child. And... Um, he was in prison for two and a half years. Most of it, not most of it, a lot of it in solitary confinement. Horrible conditions. He was part of that release last March. And um, it was a Sunday evening, and I was at home, and my phone rang. And uh, I was watching a very important game. I didn't want to answer the phone. And uh, the caller ID said it was Jared Genser, the human rights lawyer. And I answered it. And uh, Jared said, someone wants to say hello to you. 
And Felix came on and said, I'm sorry to interrupt your Super Bowl, he said. And I said, you are my Super Bowl. And um, through him, I was doing some more on Nicaraguan political prisoners and human rights. Uh, I was emailing with Bianca Jagger. Do you know how weird it is to email with Bianca Jagger? She'd been really good on this issue. And um, an amazing thing. About 10 days ago, I attended this gala in New York. Didn't want to. At my stage, you get out of every gala you can, you know. But it was the Renew Democracy Initiative, which is spearheaded by Gary Kasparov, or Kasparov, the chess champion turned human rights champion. There are all these sterling people there, many of whom I'd written about, including the hotel manager from Hotel Rwanda, Paul Rusesa Bagina. He saved more than 1,000 people in the Rwandan genocide. And George W. Bush gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And for the last two and a half years, he's been in prison, tortured. He's 69. He was released in March. And he was there with his family. Uh, two of his daughters have campaigned for him all over the world. I got to know them a couple years ago. But just to meet this guy. And um, there was a reception beforehand. We're all standing around. And there's a guy I didn't know we got to talking. And... Um, he was, he was maybe the worst dressed person there. You know what I've discovered? They're almost always the richest. Yeah, they don't care. They don't stand on ceremony. He was a finance zillionaire, wonderful guy. He hadn't put on a tie, didn't need to. And, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And we talk. And I met several funders that, that night, rich people who just wanted to help these causes. And we talked about this, and, and this fellow said to me, that's my role, that's what I can do, I've made this pile, this is what I can do. And I said, well, I'm kind of the same way. I take no risks. I'm sitting in my recliner, in my living room, with my laptop on my lap. I use it as a literal laptop, it's on my lap. Eating my bad food and drinking my milkshakes, you know. I do nothing, but what I can do is throw a little spotlight on others. That's the happiest part of this work I do. I can provide others a, a little platform and, and, and let readers know about them, who they are, what they've said, what they've done, what is happening to them. That's a little something, and not, not just in the area of these you know, brave, heroic dissidents. Um, so last week I was in San Diego which has had an explosion of homelessness, like so many American cities. So many homeless people, many mentally ill, many addicted, some just down and out. You know? And there are all these uh, people, the points of light, as the first Bush said. There are all these individuals and organizations that are helping these people. And they want noble people. I don't do anything for homeless people. I mean, I have little individual interactions with them in New York. I don't do anything. But I can write about people who do and tell about them, sort of thank them. And it's such a privilege. And uh, I'll end with something gooey or even further gooey that um, I'm so grateful to live in a free country. I know that's like a banal Fourth of July thing to say. But I spend so much time with people who don't. So much time. I was just reading today 
on my phone about this um, AFP, APF, I forget the name of the, the initials of the French wire service, videographer, video journalist in Ukraine who's just been killed. Wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. And the likes of me can highlight them. Anyway, I, uh, you heard about this strange book I've, I wrote some years ago called Children of Monsters, about the sons and daughters of dictators. And when you write something, whether it's a book or an article, you may aim at something or you may have some kind of purpose, but you never know how readers are going to react because that's up to them. It's like a piece of music. The composer may have an intent, but the music, once the music is released, belongs to the listener. If he says it's about something, the listener, well, it is to him. It doesn't matter what the composer says. And so many people said to me, but by so many I mean like five, but in my world that's a lot, you know, said to me, the book just made me so grateful to live in a free country in an atmosphere of ordered liberty. And uh, so that's enough of my banalities. And I will entertain any and all questions. And thank you so very much. Mm. Uh, so, did you find Lefty? I would switch every few months. I'd get tired of one and move on to another. What do I have currently? Not really. And if I'm confessing, I read liberals, sort of left of center, moderate, Atlantic magazine types, but a real lefty? I'll start tomorrow. It's like a, it's like a diet. I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. I liked Richard Cohen a lot until, until we started agreeing on everything that had to do with world affairs. You know, he was, he was sort of a Cold War liberal hawk. So I thought, that's cheating. He's not a real lefty. I need someone else. Yeah. Even Hitchens was cheating after a while. Thank you so much for shining your spotlight on Ukraine and what's going on there. It's tremendous. Um, to, uh, one thing, I knew someone from Ukraine who came to the U.S. for journalism school shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, and her comment to me was, they seem proud of the fact that they don't tell you what to think, they tell you what to think about. And that seems to be epidemic in journalism. A quick question for you. How is David Price Jones? I miss his writing very much. He's um, had, had, had breakfast with a, one of his children a couple of days ago. He's good. He um, watched the coronation uh, and uh, thought that new king and queen didn't look very happy. Uh, he's had his challenges, but um, I and others are spurring him to resume writing. And uh, what a treasure. I've, I've learned so much from him. Uh, many years ago, there was an historian at Yale, a famous historian of the American South named C. Van Woodward. And a student of his, J. Mills Thornton III, as David would say, a man who rejoices in the name of J. Mills Thornton III, marvelous historian he is, Mills Thornton. He said in, a, I guess, a foreword to a book of his, I want to thank Professor Woodward for, what I, for giving me what I can only call a cast of mind. David has done that for me, given me a cast of mind. One thing I say about Bill Buckley and Norman Podhoretz and others is that they didn't teach me what to think, but they had a 
great deal to do with teaching me how to think. And then the conclusions are up to you. I love to hear Bill talk because often he, you, you could, he would let you in on his thinking process. Even before he got to the punchline, he, he, he would talk so that you could hear him think it through. It was quite an education. And, um, you know, he was often, often maybe not right, but regularly at odds with his crowd. Um, he, along with George Will and others on the right, uh, supported the Panama Canal treaties. Uh, Bill Buckley was a, an advocate, and indeed champion, of drug legalization before it was cool. I'm not sure I agree with him on that. But it's just to note his independence of mind. question about you're from Michigan and you live in New York now do you think it's necessary to be somewhere like New York to do your job to make the connections and so forth I mean how valuable is that I know some of the other office off, authors for National Review have moved to Texas and Florida but what about you It's good and bad. I just did a panel on this recently. And what I said is that at my stage of journalism, I'm fine at home. I sort of like being at home. But I think all the people with the standard I learned from, cheek by jowl, you know, Bill Crystal, Fred Barnes, Tucker Carlson was there, Matt Labash, Chris Caldwell, Andy Ferguson, on and on. I learned so much, Claudia Winkler, Richard Starr, David Brooks. I learned so much, and there were arguments, jokes, debates, insults, you know, lunches, late night things. And for years and years, I was sort of, at National Review, I was the designator, the designator, the unofficial taker out to lunch of interns and junior fellows and so on. That's all gone. And I think it's bad, not for me, but for up and coming people. I think it's bad to live alone in your room, even when you're, you're hooked up with Zoom and everyone complains about Zoom. I think it's a glorious thing. I've often called YouTube the greatest invention since the wheel, and I think Zoom might be in the top five. When I was growing up, there were futuristic TV programs and movies that had things just like Zoom, where you could see people on the screen, talk to them, they were thousands of miles away, and now it's here. And everyone complains about it, and maybe with good reason, but it is kind of a miracle, but it's not the same. But yes, pr presumably, if you have the internet, if you have Wi-Fi and a phone, you can do journalism from anywhere. But there's nothing like showing up. I've been thinking about, I can Zoom with people all over the world, interview them um, without leaving my living room, and I can see them, so it's, it's different from the phone, so I think I'll do that especially when it saves my employer money, um, travel expenses, hotel, and so on. But there's something about being there. He was, you know, I went to see Khodorkovsky, the ex-political prisoner and ex-oligarch from Russia in London. I guess I could have Zoomed with him. But when I entered his office there, that I forget what he calls his organization, the Open Russia Foundation, I can't remember, I noticed there was surprisingly little security. Isn't he a target of the FSB? And so I, I opened with this question. There's so little security. 
And he gave me an interesting answer. He said, I have a layer or two, but if they really want to get me, they will. I'll just make it a little bit harder. Well, I couldn't have known that on Zoom. And it, so it's showing up is not the be-all, end-all. But I do like the idea of showing up. You never, the surprising things happen. You see a book on someone's shelf and you talk about it and it leads to an interesting discussion. Something like that. But yeah, National Review people are far flung. We've got them in, used to be we were clustered in New York because where would Bill Buckley have his magazine but New York? And then there was a Washington bureau. Now we've got people in Salt Lake City, Florida, hither and yon. And they're all present through technology. But as a dinosaur, more and more I feel like a fossil. I do like, but by the way, I can't get my young colleagues to call me. They think it's a huge imposition to call on the phone. They text, they slack, they Snapchat, they Instagram, but using the telephone is like an affront. You know, and I'd say go so much faster than what I call email ping pong. Or, uh, and some young people even think using email is like using a fountain pen and a scroll. But uh, anyway, I'm a dinosaur. Right, and this will be the last question. <laughs> by, by the way, the, the Tigers are down one zip in the sixth inning. Um, yeah, two, two quick questions. One, there's so much journalism, quote unquote, out there today, so, much, so many places, newspapers, you know, TV, cable, podcast, internet. How do you, de how do you determine, because I think there's a real trick uh, out there, especially as the mainstream media sort of leans farther and farther left, of determining what the real Walter Cronkite type of, you know, reporting is where it's factual versus I'll give you three facts and I'll Kurt, slip in an Kurt, opinion. Kurt, don't forget how much we complained about Walter Cronkite. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> a a uh, sailing buddy of Bill Buckley. By the yes, way. Yeah. yes. It, well, and, and how, do you, how do you determine, or how do you find, you know, you, you mentioned AP earlier, which is probably a good piece um, as far as facts as close as you can get, but, but is there a way to tell of the difference between strict opinion journalism and factual journalism? Yeah. Uh, Abe Rosenthal, A.M. Rosenthal, another friend of Bill's, uh, the executive editor of the New York Times, was once asked, how do you edit the paper? He said, with my stomach. <laughs> Nose, stomach, sense, experience, smell test. And I think the more and more widely you read, the savvier the shopper you are. Like shopping. You've been in enough markets, you know what's, what's a good product, what's a good price. I think there's no substitute for it just shopping around and seeing what rings true to you, whether you like it or not. That's the best I can do. And if you have enough variety, you don't have to go crazy. A little bit of Wall Street Journal editorial page. A little bit of New York Times. A little bit of National Review Online. A whiff of, I don't know, American prospect, just a little, not much. Even headlines to know what subjects are being addressed. 
Because, as I said, um, bias, I'll repeat myself, excuse me, really lies in what you include and what you exclude. And just see what's out there. And I think after a while, you have a pretty good sense. Uh, when you're getting something straight or something sincere, something honest, even if it's weighted, or, you know, you're being bamboozled, someone's trying to sell you a, a bill of goods, I think eventually your nose lets you know. And the the, the harder the harder question. Mm. Uh, you you are a unique figure, somewhat. As time goes on, there's fewer fewer people that actually dealt with Bill Buckley on a daily basis, um, just through you know through legacy and attrition. If if there, in knowing that you know the answer is no, there is no Bill Buckley today. Who would be the couple, three people that you would see as having a lot of the same traits that he had as a educator, an entertainer, a journalist, a writer, um, just a personality? Mm. Bill would say, he'd say this in Latin first. I can't remember the Latin phrase. Bill would say, um, to include some is to exclude others. He always said that, the perils of naming, the perils of naming. Forgive me if I answered generally. Um, Bill was so famous. I was out with him a fair amount. Everyone recognized him. You might say, oh, I was in New York. Of yeah, but elsewhere too. And he was famous in a way it's very hard to be now. There are only three networks in PBS. He was on every weekend. He was on the Dick Cavett show, the Tonight Show, Laugh-In. He was a national figure um, everyone's on television now. There are millions, even the likes of me are on television now and then. They let anyone in, the riffraff, you know. Uh, but Bill shone in a period where the number of celebrities was limited. Everyone recognized him. And we'd go to concerts and operas and, and people, would, people would scurry up to him and say, uh, you know, you, you had a great impact on me. You're my hero never much agreed with you, I'm a liberal, but I was so respected what you say and how you write, and you made me more open. I heard this over and over again, and he took it in stride, and he always. And once we were, we were in the Caribbean, uh, we were in Grenada, site of the invasion, or as we called it in those days, the liberation. And um, we're at the airport, and there was a, a young woman behind the counter, I think she'd heard something from her manager. She said, uh, are you famous? Bill said, yes, I am. <laughs> and she said, why? He said, I'm a rock and roll star. Uh, immediately giving away that he wasn't, because no one by then said rock and roll, the, the way Bill did, nobody. Um, and then she said, and then the manager behind her said, no, nah, he's a writer. And Bill looked shocked, you know, like offended. Um, he was, he was really famous. He was gifted, yes. He was incredibly talented. But you know, he was on 60 Minutes twice. When people were watching fewer things and reading. Good Lord, he was syndicated and I think about 500 newspapers. That's a lot. And the big people now are the big cable TV hosts and the big podcasters. Yeah. Um... Writers, not so much, I suppose. 
not so much. Um, I don't want to be such a fossil that I talk about the good old days. I'll tell you a quick musical anecdote. It was during the 1980s, I think, and there was an old Viennese conductor who was assisting at the Met. Tausig, his name was. Walter Tausig, I think. And he said to the music director, James Levine, Jimmy, they talk about the good old days of the Vienna Opera and so on. He said, I was there. I want you to know these are the good old days right now. And so um, there's a lot of that too. I, I feel um, if I start naming writers, I'll just think of those I leave out. But they're just some wonderful ones. I mean, I adore Kevin Williamson. I think he's a, I'm trying to avoid the cliche national treasure. I think he's a big asset, you know. And a truly unique personality, um, not out of a cookie cutter. Uh, my friend, the composer Michael Hirsch, wonderful composer, brilliant. Someone said to him, you're the most own drum person I know. Because Michael's weird I mean, in, in, in a wonderful way. You know, he, he pays no attention to fashion, none. These own drum people, I do admire quite a bit. I do admire quite a bit. And uh, maybe that's enough. I, what, what I respect it, it, in music and in journalism, I so respect sincerity. I may think you're wrong or even full of it, but I, I have such great respect for sincerely held and expressed beliefs, whatever. Are you at least honest about them? Because there's a lot of playing in my business, you know? There's a lot of showbiz in my business. I think over time you can, you can, you can uh, suss out the sincere ones. And that's really what I ask for. And also a little, little humor, I think, goes a long way. My thanks to Lindenwood and Show Me and National Review and all of you. And I'm getting the hook now. And thanks for staying with me. And good night. Thank you.